I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey listeners, if you like our podcast, you should check out Kind World from WBUR. Hosts Yasmin Ammer and Andrea Aswahe share stories that will help restore your faith in humanity and reaffirm the belief that there's a lot of good in the world. On Kind World, listeners share personal stories about how an act of kindness helped them get through some of the most difficult moments of their lives. Like the woman who was haunted by her father's serial killer past and says her teacher helped save her life. Or the six-year-old boy who raised a million dollars to cure his best friend's rare disease. You can listen to Kind World on your favorite podcast app or wherever you get Chosen Family. Just a heads up for folks out there with younger listeners, there is some swearing and talk about sex in this episode. self-esteem, which is pretty amazing because I'm probably somebody who wouldn't necessarily have a lot of self-esteem as I am considered a minority. And if you are a woman, if you're a person of color, if you are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, if you're a person of size, if you're a person of intelligence, if you're a person of integrity, then you are considered a minority in this world. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Chosen Family. Hi, Trana. Hi. <laughs> we are 10 minutes away from speaking to one of your heroes, Margaret Cho. I can't believe it's happening. Margaret was such an important part of my, like, very isolated teenage years. It was basically Sex in the City and Margaret. And coming home for me at the end of the school day was always such a relief because school felt so horrible and I felt so repressed and just knowing that when I got home my Margaret Cho special DVDs were waiting for me was like such a comfort so I'd have to sort of like wait till night when my mom and my sister were asleep not because I was hiding the material just because I wanted to watch them alone like I wanted to sort of enter this world uninterrupted and just experience it the way that I wanted to it was just everything I needed to hear at that moment in my life that I wasn't hearing from anyone else. How old were you? I must have been like 14. And the specials that really got me hooked on her were her first special, I'm the One That I Want, and her follow-up, Notorious CHO, which are really like two masterpieces of comedy. I feel like the two shows were so radically personal. Even before Hannah Gatsby, it was this comedian on stage who would take these like five, sometimes 10 minute stretches of their not necessarily being anything funny, at least not in a traditional sense, but just sharing and really just opening up the form and talking about things like validation and wanting acceptance and self-actualization and 
embracing your sexuality. And her mom. And her mom. Classic Margaret show is her imitating her Korean-American mom. One instance is when she leaves a, a voicemail about Margaret being lesbian. And then she just uses the Asian-American stereotypes in a way that only an Asian-American performer can do. that you are gay from the time that I you born and the first time I see you, I hold you in my arm and I say, oh, you're so beautiful. She's so beautiful. What a dyke. Oh, what a big dyke. And you, maybe one day you will grow up to be PE teacher. Oh. So how did you get into Margaret Cho in the first place? Actually, I had an online crush who was a Margaret fan, and that's how I sort of heard about her. Did and he turn out gay? Her. No, he was gay. Oh, he was gay. Yeah. Right. You were just obsessed with a gay man online. Exactly. As you do. Exactly. <laughs> and when I really, really have a big crush on someone, I sort of like to get in on what they like. Right. But then when I saw Margaret, it just like, it became so much bigger than that. I have to say, I think it's, it has to be with being Francophone. I think to, to me, Margaret was very American and very sort of remote for me. So I was, I never really tuned in and I was quite afraid of her. I can see that. There is something so um, transgressive about yeah. Margaret, especially at the time. I feel like she was so ahead of the curve. Like She, she was. was talking about things that people in the mainstream are only just starting to talk about now. And this was, you know basically 15 years ago. Well, the two specials that you mentioned, I watched again recently, and you're right, they still really hold up. They're so relevant in terms of conversation and representation, but mostly I feel because of the way she approaches trauma. She's been very open about uh, being a survivor of sexual violence when she was a kid, and watching her be such a fighter and such an artist, it's of course, you don't want people to go through trauma. You don't want people to experience bad things. But then they give you amazing art. Right. And art that was so informative to me. Like, Margaret really felt like this big sister who was, like, teaching me about sex parties and addiction and oral all sex, of it. Oral sex. Gay men. And fag hags. All of it. Like, it was <laughs> such an education. I don't know if I'm a bottom because it turns me on, or if I'm a bottom, because I'm lazy. <laughs> I fucking found a top, though. Boy, did I ever. I found this hot, straight, leather daddy top. He was awesome. He was huge. His dick had a dick. What I love about her also is how much of a Gen X she is. Because we're millennials, we're the generation after. Like, it reminded me also of, like, Janine Garofalo and, like, that. These Gen X women in the 90s who had, like, no Fs to give. Yeah. No Fs were given. That's very true. And I always had this feeling as a kid and maybe even more so as a teenager that, like, my life was kind of on hold. Like, right. I felt like... I knew there was something better for me on the other side. And I think Margaret, watching her, it sort of gave me this calling to something greater that was beyond 
the isolation that I was feeling. Did you pick up on her queerness? Is that something that was appealing to you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think she was such a champion for queer people. Mm -hmm. um, I think especially, like, at the time, gay men. But, I mean, even at the end of Notorious CHO, where she really gives this, like, beautiful... I mean, it's almost a speech or, like, a manifesto. You know, she mentions trans people and, and everyone, and... It was the first message of true inclusivity that I've ever seen, and it's a message that completely holds up to today. If you're a person of intelligence, if you're a person of integrity, then you are considered a minority in this world. Margaret is a fucking rock star. I started off as... Um, Actually, I was a duo, and I had a partner who actually is the very famous actor, Sam Rockwell, who uh, went on to much of greater. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we did comedy. We were like 14, 15 years old, and we had a theater teacher who would sign us up for these open mic nights where we would do these little sketches for like five minutes. Do you remember any of your early, early jokes? I mean, early jokes were kind of about... Um, well, that you know, in San Francisco, and this is in the '80s, there were a lot of um, comedians making fun of Asian drivers. So I would come on after all of these people had done that and say, "I, my name is Margaret Cho, and I drive very well." <laughs> and then, uh, so I would then continue from there. But um, you know, I was so young and really had no understanding of the world. So I was kind of growing up as a performer in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, in San Francisco in the 80s and 90s, um, I was doing shows in little gay bars and then expanding on to doing um, a lot of um, activism. You know, like there was so much uh, political stuff happening because of AIDS and because of the government completely ignoring this terrible plague that we were trying to survive through. So there was a lot of political activism in the very beginning um, around my performances. And so that, that helped me kind of understand maybe more about who I was going to end up becoming as a performer. You literally grew up in the Castro, correct? Yes. Um, in the Castro, also there was the the Polk District, which is um, kind of the area where, you know, the, the, the show Tales of the City and the book series is um, set. So a lot of that is actually, it's in the Castro, but it's also in the Polk and the Marina and, um, you know, but the Polk was really decimated by AIDS. Um, it's one of the communities that really was was gone um, after a few short years because of all of the death. And so it, it was really, it was a terrible time to grow up, but also a, a really important time to understand gayness, to understand politics and to understand a life of activism. Were you uh, yourself out as a queer person at the time? Yes. I had started off as straight up Les. <laughs> I was like, Les, no chaser. Um, you know, <laughs> Le Les, uh, just BYO Les. Like it was not, there was no, uh, you know, frills. And then I later realized, oh, there's actually more to this because I, uh, I like dick. <laughs> so then, you know, it's complicated. And then it was then it was a problem because people really around me, you know, my parents owned a gay bookstore in the Polk neighborhood, and 
everybody understood gay and lesbian. Very few people understood bi. And of course, there was a great understanding of trans as well, too, in that early era. But only trans women, there was not a sense of visibility for trans men yet. You know, and this is the 80s. So uh, we were still kind of understanding ourselves. And um, But bisexuality was a very strange place to be at that time because a lot of people would use bisexuality as a kind of excuse when they weren't ready to fully commit to being gay. Right. They would sort of say, uh, I'm bi, <laughs> as my- a way to kind of, you know, maybe mask it somehow. Right. But my, my I have to tell you, Margaret, my dad recently came out as bisexual in his 50s. Mm. Uh, wow. And I joked about it on stage. Being raised by a queer dad is finally yeah. so... It's I'm I'm so happy about well, it. Well, raised by a closeted, yeah. a closeted queer dad, but then he wasn't living his. Queerness. But he was he wasn't living yeah. it, but he was still queer when I think of it. Right. Yeah, that's so rich too. You have to talk about that because, you know, I think that's really meaningful, and um, and it's so precious that he can come out now. So you know, you've got to talk about it. I know that they get very sensitive at first. Like my mother really never. Um, they never saw my early performances, so they never knew. And they, by the time I ha- was sort of well in, in, into a television career, that was when my parents kind of came into understanding what I was doing. But uh, I think that they would have been uncomfortable at the beginning if had they known what was happening. What was your relationship like with your parents during your childhood and, and those formative years? Well, they were very absent because they were working all the time because it was, a you know, in the 70s, we had a series of businesses. They had um, this restaurant that was in a bowling alley and then they bought this gay bookstore. And so there was a lot of like kind of latchkey kid stuff like, you know, we, we just never had babysitters. I never had a sense of my parents being around even um, into my early teens. And so... Being a comedian was a, a sort of a thing to do where I wasn't talking to myself. I was talking to audiences, and it it felt really freeing and really good. Um, but, yeah, I wasn't under a lot of parental supervision. And then, you know, coming out later, they accept everything and then until you get to the bi. And then they're like, <laughs> we don't understand that. Right. Because they understand gay and they understand lesbian, but they don't understand bisexuality. That, to them, is, is very... Uh, that, that seems like that you're not telling the truth. Like, like I, I don't know why, but a bi liar is really like the stereotype <laughs> of like our, our people. I don't know what, what that means exactly. In that absence that you're describing in those early years, did you feel like there was some kind of support missing? Because you've spoken very openly about the intense bullying that you suffered as a kid and mm-hmm. the sexual abuse and... Did you mm-hmm. want to go to your parents during that time? Did you feel like there was a support missing in that experience? Oh, yeah, very much so. And that's why it was such, um, you know, it's so easy to get um, molested because you're so, hung- as a child, you're so hungry for attention from adults that anybody that shows it to you, you're really devoted to. And you're going to keep those secrets if they ask you to keep secrets. And you're going to... Just do what they say because you think, well, this is how adults are. This is how I have to be. You know, like you kind of it's easy to groom kids who are not being supervised or don't have a lot of parental attention or affection or, um, you know, those kinds of things that we realize now that's really important. But back then, 
we didn't understand it. And as a child, I never understood it. So, you know, you become very, like, open to, like, predators and open to that kind of grooming. So that's really unfortunate. And then also, if you grow up gay, that other kids can sense there's something different about you. And they, they maybe don't have the real understanding of what it is, but they know you're different and they know that you are... Um, Something that is, you know, needs to be controlled or somehow they don't know how to process it other than to be, um, you know, violent or some some kind of violence comes out of it. It's very strange. It's so interesting to hear you say that because I was bullied a lot as a kid, too. And I mm-hmm. think that that's part of the kinship that I felt to you as a kid growing up and reading. Mm-hmm. I'm the one that I want. Like, yeah. I felt like, OK, like I can get through this. Like there is something on the other side. But That idea of like people picking up on something in you that is different, because I remember Mm -hmm. when I was a kid, I didn't really have an understanding of what being trans meant or what that looked like. I just didn't have those examples in my life or in media at the time. But Mm -hmm. all the kids would call me a girl. And it's so weird to look back at like Mm. they saw something that I wasn't even fully aware of they were using it as a weapon against me but they still saw something that like it's weird that like they were right i hate to like i can't believe they were right it's so weird and it's also so weird too when you end up seeing these people as adults who are incredible bullies because they don't remember a lot of them don't remember being bullies at all and only remember you as a kid that was there especially if you go on to achieve fame and recognition as a comedian or or whatever they are excited about seeing you. You know, they never That's like think hilarious. back of like their behavior, which to me is really appalling. And how would you, so? I'm assuming <laughs> that you've had those moments then of like people from the past coming to you and oh, being yeah. like, "Margaret, Margaret, I'm such a big fan." Like, yeah. how would you shocking. react in those moments? Oh, I just act like I don't know them. And that's really funny. <laughs> that's really funny. Like, I just go, I have no idea who you are. And I'm like, bless you for coming. I'm so grateful. That's amazing. Thanks and, for you your know, business. I just, yeah, thank you for, like, I'm just very, like, you know, I, I don't acknowledge that they were there. And I think that's the only way that I can kind of process it. Keep power. Because I don't want to be mean. You know, you yeah. don't want to be like, uh, wait, right, rude, because then it's like, who? why are you still mad after 40 years? You're, like, still salty after all this time. Well, I had but this... I, I think it's weird. Yeah, I had this moment recently where I was doing um, a relatively important showcase, and one of my big high school bullies was in the audience that night, and I spotted mm-hmm. him just before I was about to go on stage. And wow. there was this part of me that wanted to seize this moment for revenge, or like right. some kind of vindication, you know, which I know, right. like, what would that have really brought me? But I don't know. It's kind of crazy that sometimes you think that you're completely over it. But sometimes there's still these remnants. But I don't think it's that black yeah. and white. I think like it's a lot of bullies also have been bullied or also have mm-hmm. been, you know, like and I, I'm sort of interested. You've been open about your your past addiction and I'm in recovery. I haven't had a drink in eight years and um, because I love alcohol. Um, I do too. And, yes. and uh, I've been an asshole, uh, sober, mm-hmm. not sober. And we have this like very um, black and white perception of bullies and victims. Mm. And I have been, I guess, a victim, but also I have been an asshole in the past. Do you yeah, relate to that? Absolutely. I think that like, yeah, if you have been bullied, it's very easy to absorb that and then bully others because you are modeled that behavior. And then you're like, oh, well, this is how you're supposed to be. And um, or, you know, what it is, is is with gay kids, I feel like 
uh, you know you're gay and you don't want anybody else to to know it. So you're going to lash out right. at the other kid that sort of displays what you your secret. Right. It's kids' fear of their own feelings that causes them to become bullies as well. A few years ago, you disclosed on Twitter that you have been a sex worker in the past. Um, yeah. you, were you sort of doing that at the same time as you were starting in stand-up comedy? Yeah. Um, and I was trying to do a million jobs so that I could uh, I could just do um, stand-up comedy. So I would have to do jobs where I could quit easily uh, and return to if I needed to. So uh, one of the was uh, phone sex, which back in the <laughs> 80s, people would call you and you would talk to them. And then I got uh, promoted to talking on um, these recorded messages where it was uh, people who were not speaking English as their first language wanting to learn English, but also jerk off at the same time. Wow. <laughs> so you, you had uh, these English lessons that were... Um, kind of be very uh, descriptive and and um, <laughs> raunchy, <laughs> but uh, but right, look, correct structure, simple sentence structure, and easily understood uh, paragraphs. I don't but, know why, yeah. but there was always something that seemed kind of glamorous to me about like being a phone sex operator. And like, I feel like if it was yeah. still a thing, I guess it's kind of you still have is, a good but voice like, for I it. would love to do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, it, it, especially if you think like, oh, it's going to be like a princess phone, you know, like one of those like big with the gold and, um, you know, it looks like it's old timey. It's like porcelain phone or something. And uh, in the bath. Yeah. Talking on the phone in the bathtub. <laughs> but did you actually have to you go know? to like a call center to do this? Or were you doing yeah. it from home? Like an office. That had a, a recording booth at the end. Wow. So it was uh, that. And then I was also the um, Raggedy Ann at a toy store. Wow. <laughs> like a live, living, a living Raggedy Ann at a toy store, but also um, doing phone sex at the same time. So lots of crazy jobs I had. I hope I get famous enough. I think I might be on my way. I just um, got my own TV show. It's called All American Girl. And it's very. <laughs> Margaret, do you know why I encourage your brother to become a cardiologist? No. Because I always knew that one day you'd give me a heart attack. What are you wearing? <laughs> Took a long time to agree on that name. You know, I wanted it to be called the Margaret Cho Show because I'm such a fucking egomaniac <laughs> that I couldn't have it any other way. And they had their own suggestions. Uh, East meets West. Walk on the wild side. <laughs> W-O-K, walk. So I had a huge tantrum and said, fuck you, we're going to call it Chinkies. <laughs> it's Goop's place or we're not doing it. So how did All American Girl come about? Was it something that you sought out or were you approached? Well, I was doing a, a lot of stand-up comedy. I uh, was being sought after because at that time, there were a lot of comedians who were, who were having great success with their own sitcoms, you know, whether it was uh, Tim Allen with Home Improvement or Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Seinfeld, of course. So, you know, they were looking at comedians to build shows around. And uh, so I seemed the best candidate because I was young. I was... Um, different all something that people were really anxious to 
you know, monetize somehow. So I got to um, make the show. You know, unfortunately, it didn't turn out as well as I wanted it to. I think people had so much racial baggage around it and what they wanted to do. Um, and, uh, you know, at that time, we thought, oh, we're going to see a big change in entertainment because, you know, this was the time where Joy Luck Club had come out and All American Girl had come out. And we thought, well, we have this huge hit movie and this TV show. Maybe we'll see more. And it didn't happen again for uh, 25 years with Fresh Off the Boat and uh, Crazy Rich Asians. So it, it was very disappointing that it took so long to come around again. But uh, it was an interesting time that, that back then, certainly, to, to be in show business. I mean, you've said that that experience, especially when it was all over, nearly killed you. Yeah. And, you know, as you detail, and I'm the one that I want, you were asked to lose weight. They brought in trainers that tried to get yes. you on pills. And they pushed you so hard that you wound up in the hospital. Like, how did you put yourself back together after that. You did this joke as your mom for a long time where it was basically like gay men love two things, Judy Garland and ass. Yes. Was that the joke? What's a whole thing about her explaining gay porn to me. Right. She she didn't want me to get it wrong. So (laughs) she wanted to explain um, this uh, porno they had called Ass Master. And it was like a porno like a magazine. So that that was from that. But yes, actually, the reason that I brought up Judy Garland is that in a weird way, like there was this sort of parallel experience between what she sort of went through in those early studio days and what you sort of went through. And then Mm -hmm. when you survived that experience, you sort of emerged as this gay icon in a way that Judy did, but obviously coming from such a different place. Like you were yeah, able to really like, turn that around and and yeah. empower yourself. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I think that with with her, I mean, it, she was really in the clutches of the Hollywood machine, and um, fortunately, I was able to get out somewhat because comedy is really about rebellion and really about saying whatever. And uh, so, when you can get out from under it, it's it's a true, it's really a relief. You know, it really almost killed me. But what came back to me is. Um, a real love of stand-up comedy, because after the show was canceled, I was able to just go on the road and kind of work it out and talk about it on stage, and it really it really made me a better comedian. I mean, I, I come at this now as a real, um, like a showbiz veteran. You know, I've been around for a long time, and I can, um, I can look out and see people who I've been able to inspire through my work, and that's really fulfilling, you know. And, and now to see a lot, a lot of this Asian-American renaissance of uh, performers out there, um, you know, really doing so amazing. And, you know, that's that's so exciting for me. And I love, I love that I get to see that, you know, and I love that I get to really understand that they got that strength to go up there and do it because of me. And then it's not just, it's not just Asian Americans. There's a lot of gay and lesbian comedians as well who uh, really cite me as a, as a tremendous influence. And that, that is so, that's just so, I'm just so, I mean, I'm really moved by that because that just makes me feel like, oh, it was all really worth it. It's really, it really is great. You really use your power and your voice to champion other people, especially the LGBTQ community. And we see it so strongly. And I'm the one that I want a notorious CHO. You know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, when you were really championing gay men and gay marriage, and now we've come all this way. Mm. Do you feel like now that 
you know, gay marriage is legal. And of course, we're in a sort of moment where a lot is being, you know, threatened and sort of taking a couple of steps back. But just in a more general sense, now that cis gay men might not need a hero the same way they did 15 years ago, has your relationship with them changed either personally or just in terms of your shows and who comes out? No, I think that we still all need each other. You know, I still think like, we always need that champion. We always need that voice on our side. And I feel like, you know, my show's really, I want to, I really want to unite the queer community in, in, in that, like, in a lot of the times, like, when I was growing up and, you know, certainly, like, 80s and 90s, like, we really uh, would segregate ourselves. You know, it's like the women and the men did not mix. In, and the trans community did not mix with the, and the, well, you know, and the bias, nobody likes them. Nobody likes us. <laughs> we're, not, we're not invited. But everybody, you know, had their own separate communities, and now we realize the importance of coming together. And that's the big shift that I, I've seen. And, and uh, you know, so for me, I, I've always, I really strive for that, you know, and, and I really see it in audiences and see it in, you know, everything that I do. Do you feel... A responsibility to that audience because when performers really put themselves out there in that way and develop that kind of close relationship with their audience, how much of a boundary do you need to keep and how much of a responsibility do you feel to the sort of well-being of your audience as they connect to you? Well, you want to be um, aware and you want to be um, sensitive to a lot of things. I mean, I, I'm already sort of naturally sensitive to special mentally health, like mental health issues are, it's like, I understand, you know, I've been institutionalized. I've been put away because of my behavior. And it's, I actually really shine in an institution, but I think that it's like really. Can you elaborate like on that? You know, well, you know, I always make the best arts and crafts. Like it's really incredible what I can do. With feathers and construction paper and glue. And like, you know, it's like you really, um, you know, it's like when you joke about that kind of stuff, I think people really love that you can be, you know, vulnerable and, and talk about it. You know, like my big thing about summer, like May is the hardest month because that's gay Ramadan where all gay people <laughs> don't eat anything <laughs> so that we can have a snatched body for pride in June. And so it's like that thing of like everybody knows like how like, oh, we're supposed to feel all of this like, you know, stuff like feeling good about ourselves for pride. But really, it's just a chance to show off those abs. And <laughs> it's not like it's 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 I think that the humor of that is not lost on us, too, you know, and it, it's like you know, where can we find some balance and peace around all of the issues that we have and still be, you know, very proud and together. So to me, it's, it's, there's a lot to joke about, but there's a lot there that it's, it's so sad. If you didn't laugh, you would cry. Think of your favorite one hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now, what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm DeLon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Excuse me, lady. You do the vow? You know, speak now or forever hold your peace, but... Oh, my God, are you? No, I'm nobody. Kim Jong-il is dead. 
I'm only waiter. I'm greatest waiter of all time. Lynn, I'm a writer. You're fucking doing my show. If I have to hunt you down, skin you alive, and have one of the other models fucking wear you. I'll call you next week. Could this place be any louder? Margaret, in addition to stand-up, you've had a great acting career. Um, you've had guest roles on Sex and the City. You've played Kim Jong-il on 30 Rock. I mean, just working with Tina Fey and Sarah Jessica Parker is pretty great. But I need to talk about John Travolta. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> in yeah. This, mo- this is the moment. You've worked with him in Face Off. Yes. Wait, you good looking. I'm embarrassed to say he was my first crush as a kid in Stain Alive. The Silver <laughs> Oh, he's great in that. Yeah, the sequel to Saturday Night Fever. He plays this like Broadway dancer. He's hot and sweaty. Hot with Fanola Hughes <laughs> and <laughs> Cynthia Rhodes. And it's actually kind of an unsung hero of his oeuvre. What was it like to work with John on Face Off? Um, I worked with him, Indy. He uh, and I became friendly. So I would go into his trailer and I would eat lunch with him. And I watched him one point eat an entire boysenberry pie with a fork, no slices. He <laughs> ate the whole pie. Um, and I followed suit. I ate my own pie. <laughs> and um, that movie was shot over the course of a year. So they had to add a uh, rubberized panel to the back of my costume. Because, you know, the movie actually only takes place over like a couple of days, but the movie took a year to shoot. So I had gained so much weight that they had to put a stretchy uh, thing in my FBI suit so that I could put it on. Oh, my God. You've gotten yeah. some slack like um, in more recent years sort of for outing, basically, John Travolta. Mm-hmm. I'm just It just sucks because there are no stars of that level in Hollywood I still know. today were out as gay men. Yeah, you know, you think about people like that or like Tom Cruise, you know, that that kind of like would just never, it's a very strange thing, you know, and um, the, the thing about that I love about John Travolta, it's not just about the sexuality. He is such a campy, funny, uh, ridiculous queen that if people really got to see that side of him, they would really adore him. Exactly. You know, because, because it is just, it's like Oscar Wilde or Lord <laughs> Byron. He's like, you know, like a, one of the romantic poets. Like, he should always have on like a pirate's blouse and a chalice and just be like pontificating on life. Like the, 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 the personality that I saw, I, I, it just really moves me. And I know that it, it's, you know, it's it's none of my business to what he does, but it's just like I really loved what I got to witness. Well, it's funny that like yes. even just positioning it as like if he would just embrace it, there's all of this love and adoration waiting for him on the other mm-hmm. side. But it, there was yeah. probably a lot of bullying, for and sure. which is why just coming back to yeah. that, which is probably why he's not, I don't know, not willing to do this. Well, he yeah, needs to watch I mean... Notorious CHO and <laughs> like... I feel exactly. like like if you if you get to the end of Notorious CHO and you don't feel like screaming out your truest self, like you're a lost yeah. case. Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked a little bit about addiction. Of course, comedy clubs are filled with alcohol and drugs. Um, the audience mm-hmm. is, you know, we, like they they there's a, like a drink minimum sometimes. Um, yeah. Other comics are drinking. You've mm-hmm. been pretty open about your journey. Um, mm-hmm. How do you feel in these spaces? I'm well. I'm. I'm. You know. I'm really open now. Like I'm kind of like 
oh, well, it, this just doesn't affect me because I, I just like, I have drank so much alcohol and I have done so many drugs that I, every time I hear that D-Light song, Grooves in the Heart, <laughs> I get like a weird taste in my mouth and my, like, all of my synapses start firing really oddly. So, you know, I really can't do drugs anymore. I really can't drink anymore. Like, I have such a long time problem with drugs and alcohol that it's just not, not possible for me to participate. I feel the same as you. Like, I've had enough. You know, I've had so much. Yeah. Um, it's just not cute. It's so gross. <laughs> like, it's not It's not fun. Oh, I also lost my very best friend, um, Jerry Lawler, who I, she was my best friend for 40 years, and my drug buddy, and mm. my drinking buddy. And it's really weird when you lose your drug guide. She was always, like, the one that was, like, a little bit less wasted, so she could guide me out of whatever was happening. Like, it's really awful, you know, and um, Jerry was my soulmate, mm-hmm. and that's really hard to, it's it's hard to reckon with. And getting older, you lose people. It's it's very hard, um, but I guess that we get to experience it because we're around for so long. It's one thing to lose because you you were close with um, Robin Williams or, or Joan mm-hmm. Rivers. It's one thing to lose yeah. people who are from the generation before you, but now starting mm-hmm. to see people your age. Um, yeah. Passing. Well, it's like they're they got the early checkout. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're like, we're done, <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Well, it's been a while. You know, it's like 50 years. We're all 50. <laughs> well, That's fine. You're so full of life, and it's funny because you're yeah. part of the like 50 clubs. So like J Lo, <laughs> Celine Dion, Gwen Stefani, Amazing. Kylie Minogue, and you. You're Jennifer all Aniston. Jennifer Aniston. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> so Lucy like, Liu. There is something happening. What do you think like is the biggest difference between 50-year-old you and 20-year-old you? Uh, it's a piece that I have with every aspect of living, whether it's um, kind of my body or my life or my career or um, my soul. You know, that that's it's just there's a lot of peace. Like, okay, this is it. This is great, you know? Like, the, you look at the life that you've built, and you're like, that's not so bad. And you, you really have fun with it. Uh, the 90s was rough. The 90s, we were very, um, we were introspective, but there was a lot of self-hatred that was very fashionable at the time. But it's not like that now. <laughs> it's like, it, in a way, you're you're an icon also of the Generation X. I feel like mm-hmm. I there's so many women of your generation who have raised us the millennials like because we looked up to you to have to get like life advice basically like do you feel that bond and that kinship with the people after you yeah you're like you're a mother to us more of a big sister sister. cool big sister cool aunt well mother um I, I, uh, I love being a grandmother. I love being, um, you know, an old soul. I, I like I like that because I was the youngest for so long, you know, and then now it's just switched. You know, it's like going from being a bottom to a top. It's like, oh, my goodness. I'm a top now. It's very, I think it's very fulfilling. But you're an eternal bottom, really nice. Ma- Margaret, aren't I know, you? always. Yeah, always, like, forever, forever. Yeah. I'm a black hole. I'm like just, just a, I'm such a bottom, but it's like, you know, a me- metaphorical top. <laughs> well, I love I saw you saying in an interview recently that tops are in service of the bottom. Yeah, so there is like the bottom is kind of the true top, really. (laughs) They're the true top. It's like it gets very deep. Yeah, it's very it's true. There is a nurturing in all of your shows and all of your work, and I think that that's what keeps bringing us back. Like we, it's incredible that 
you've been able to build this career and people are still so invested and curious about what you're doing and what inspires you right now. Yeah, and that's really beautiful and that that I don't take lightly. So you all, you know, I always try to do it the best that I can and that's that's something that I strive for and I think comedy is really good to um the older women out there, you know, the the older women doing it. Like of course with Joan Rivers to the very end, you know, she was so amazing and so I want to follow in that path of of like being strong and you know, like she, she, I would go see Joan Rivers and I would be embarrassed. Like I, I'm kind of hard to make embarrassed. And she would tell <laughs> Why were you embarrassed? Just, By, she like... was so dirty. I could not believe it. <laughs> and I would just be shocked. And that's amazing to have that power into your 70, you know, that's so cool. So I, I would like that. I can see that happening. Mm-hmm. I think we, we need you. We still yes. need you. Definitely. Margaret Show, thank you so much for doing this. Thank, thank you so, you. so much. It was really an honor. And we love you. And <laughs> we love you so much. I yeah. love you. Wishing thank you the best. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That was Margaret oh Show. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Like, that was surreal. You're yeah, crying. I am. I just, like, I don't know. It's just this, like, weird full circle moment where you get to, like, talk to someone who's meant so much to you you know sorry (laughs) it's a good cry like it's not upsetting but (laughs) thank you for the Kleenex I don't know it's just like you know you it brings you back to well for me like that this like I mean it's not like I'm like this like victim but just like this like you know, adolescence that was, like, so isolating and Margaret being such an inspiration, not just in terms of, like, creativity and craft, but just, like, in terms of the kind of person you can be in the world, you know? And so just to, like, have had this chance to, like, talk to her about it all is, like, very surreal. Like, I really can't believe Mm. we got to do that. She was really generous. Yeah. Yeah. And Surprisingly, just, a Sagittarius. I know. There's <laughs> <laughs> something very saggy about her. She is yeah. fire. She is She's fire for sure. Your face. In your face <laughs> and powerful and but also, I mean, there must be some water somewhere because there is this, <laughs> you know, there is this empathy and this sensitivity in her as well, you know, that I think is what has made her such a hero and I think for both of us, like when we look back on the people who have really inspired us, it's the people that have really dared to make themselves vulnerable and exposed in their work and to just be so brutally honest. Um, I mean, in her case also, it's she is someone who has done the work. Like she knows um, her darker spots and her bright spots and how she can sort of contribute to the world in a really meaningful way clearly yeah because she has changed your life for sure and but that's why like i think like as a perfectionist it's hard to accept the flaws and it's hard to accept the shortcomings you know because you say that you're inspired by her but you're still in and i say that with a lot of love but on stage there's still a lot of things that you don't talk about for sure but i'm pushing myself you know and 
And I think that that's the greatest joy as a performer and the greatest fulfillment is that sharing. And talking about fisting on stage. And talking about fisting, but with depth. <laughs> <laughs> Is that it? Anything else to add? No, I think that's it. There's nowhere else to go after fisting. On Chosen Family today, you heard the one and only Margaret Cho. The clips you heard were from All American Girl, Drunk with Power, HBO Comedy Half Hour, Face Off, 30 Rock, Sex in the City, and Notorious CHO. You have to watch or listen to I'm the One That I Want and Notorious CHO. Honestly, just check out everything Margaret's done, and she's constantly performing live, so if you ever get the chance to go and see her, you owe it to yourself. And she also just launched a new podcast with Erios. I'm so excited to listen to it. Chosen Family is produced by me, Thomas LeBlanc. And me, Trana Winter. Our talent producer on this episode was Catherine Stockhausen. Our editor-producer is Crystal Duhame, and our music is by The Lost Boys. Judy Zigu is our digital producer. Tanya Springer is the senior producer of CBC Podcasts, and Arif Nirani is the executive producer. Check out our Instagram at CBC Podcasts and give the account a follow. And join the Facebook group. Trana loves moderating the Facebook group, you guys. <laughs> Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Phi Studio. Listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.